Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Kyle McDowell. He's a former executive, having led tens of thousands of employees across uh, companies such as United Health, uh, the United Health Group, CVS Health, Bank of America. He's a speaker, a leadership coach, and a best-selling author of the book Begin with We. With we Begin with We, which was uh, a bestseller in nine different Amazon categories, and at one point was number fifteen of all eBooks on <laughs> Amazon. So, yeah. Well, first of all, congratulations on that success with Thank the you. with the Thank book, you. and welcome to the show. Great to be here, Richard. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's uh, and you're coming at us from uh, Tampa in Florida, and it sounds like you you escaped the worst of the the recent hurricane. So it's uh, we did, yeah, we sure did. It was a scary few days. Um, I wish I could say the same for those about an hour and a half south of us. It's uh, pretty devastating what's go- going on down and continues to go on down there. But um, yes, we were we were unscathed here in Tampa, luckily. Yeah, that's good to good to hear. Um, so should we should we dive in where all this started? These these ten we's. Uh, on which the 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 book is based. Uh, give yeah, us a bit of the backstory. Yeah. Sure. So the ten we's. I guess for some 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 intro context, the ten we's are essentially guiding principles. They are they are they were created as a means to rally a team around a common set of beliefs. Um, because in most organizations, as you know, Richard, mission statements, value statements, purpose statements. They're all very, very important. Um, but what I have found throughout my career is that rarely do they connect with the frontline individual or you know, the common team member. I, you know, executives can speak highly and wax poetically about mission statements, but how it connects to the frontline person who is interacting with customers every day, who is driving the company or is the face of the company in many ways. I think it's um, it's safe to say that they have a hard time connecting with those lofty mission statements. I know I did. Hmm. Um, so I had an opportunity to uh, take the reins of an organization. This was back in 2016, where um, I, I was warned that there was a cultural kind of gap, and there was an opportunity to, to to turn that organization around in terms of the culture and how they interact with one another, um, how they serve the clients, um, but most importantly how they viewed themselves as a team. Um, so when I took the role, I wanted to capitalize on something I had always told myself the previous 20 plus years, that if I was ever given the opportunity to lead an organization in a way that I wanted to be led, but was never led, uh, with just complete authenticity and transparency, warts and all, I was going to do it. And when I landed this role at a company called Maximus, um, as you mentioned, where I was really fortunate enough to lead about 15,000 employees across 11 locations um, responsible for a $5 billion program, um, I, I knew that there was an opportunity to, to do just that, lead in a way that I had not been exposed to, to previously. So the night before I was to meet with the top 50 leaders of that organization in Lawrence, Kansas, I'd been on I'd been on board with the with the firm maybe two months at this point, but it was the first time ever in front of the entire leadership group at one time. So it was the night before, and I was in my hotel room, and I had no idea what I was going to say, and it was a real gut check moment for me. I knew I wanted to be direct, I knew I wanted to be uh, clear, and I knew most importantly, I knew what I wanted the team to hold me accountable to and for. 
So I started just kind of scribbling on my laptop. And a few hours later, literally around 3 a.m., I finished. And without any pre-planning or, or notion of what was going to come out, I was left with 10 sentences. And each of those sentences, coincidentally, without intention, again, started with the word we. So I rolled through each of those principles and I'm not all that creative. So I coined them the 10 we's. And, and we'll jump in. Hopefully we can jump into yeah, each of those cool. we's. But, um, but I, 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 I finished that evening, I guess, early that morning and, and said, these will be told myself, these will be the guiding principles that govern how we treat each other behind the curtain. And then secondarily, how we treat those we serve, because I am absolutely adamant. If we are high functioning, take care of each other behind the scenes, we are so much better positioned for success externally. So the next morning I took the stage and shared these principles. And by the way, I should note the, the entire presentation was in black and white because I felt that was a very kind of poetic way to say, these will be our rules of the road. These things are not negotiable because again, you'd have, you must hold me accountable to these. I expect you to, because I certainly will uh, hold you accountable as well. And uh, I have to say of the 40 or 50 people in the room, uh, maybe half uh, nodded with some encouraging uh, responses. Uh, the other, I would say quarter of uh, the remainder were really skeptical. I could tell on their faces that just kind of shut down some folded arms and just kind of stared at me like the new guy has no clue. Uh, and then the last quarter, uh, I think, showed a lot of optimism. They, they seemed to be excited and, and what I'd shared resonated with them. So I was very keen to not push those principles, you know, really overtly because I didn't want to feel as if the new guy was coming in, banging his fist on a desk and saying, here's how we're going to operate. I said, guys, these are the 10 we's. We can create the 11 we's. We can go the 12 we's. We can have the seven we's. But the point is we must align around a series of principles because Richard, um, you, you probably realize this, but by definition, a principle is a foundational belief. It's something that we hold to be true. So if we all subscribe to these principles as something we hold to be true, it really takes the guesswork out of handle adversity. It takes the guesswork out of treat. Uh, the, those that are on the team and around the team and those we serve. So, um, I, you know, kind of parenthetically happy to report some six years later, I left the organization many years ago. Six years later, I was asked to come back and deliver a keynote. We refresher to the leadership team uh, and participated in the we awards. So twice a year, this firm still gathers. And if you've been caught uh, living one of the we's or embodying any one of the we's, uh, your leader has an opportunity to nominate you and you're, you're given an award in front of the whole team. So I share that piece because um, those principles clearly resonated with that leadership team and beyond so much so that six years later, after I'm long gone, they are still essentially the cultural manifesto for that organization. So um, th that's the birth of the 10 we's. Um, it's been, well, I guess six years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you talk about, you know, early in your book about, you know, how corporate America is broken and it's no coincidence this is we and not, and not I. Was, yeah. was, is that something that just came out or, or were, you, were you aware of that before you came into this role? I was not aware of that. Um, it, it happened very, very organically. I, I had been, it had, uh, was aware that the leader that, uh, well, I would call him a boss, not a leader, that I was replacing. Um, was was not a we oriented leader. He was very much focused on his success, how he was driving the team to deliver great results, not how we were driving the team to deliver great results. So I knew when I took the stage or when I took the role, frankly, that I needed to, I must be 
uh, less, less focused on what I can bring to the table. I'm very confident in my ability to lead people, but you have to demonstrate that. I can't just walk in and say, I'm a great leader. I had to demonstrate that. And I felt like the way, and it worked out because it wasn't intentional. I, I felt like the way that I approached that organization and that team with the we first mentality, it disarmed the team that I wasn't some, some guy in shiny shoes with my own agenda to make myself look good. I was and continued to be to this day so committed to the success of the team because it's so natural. And I think bosses around the world miss this. If the team is successful by definition and by organizational structure, you as the leader, you're successful. So why would you not want everyone on the team to be their best every single day, reach their highest and best potential? And I think it's the leader's obligation to pull that out of each individual on the team. Right. Right. So, so the, the first meeting, it sounds like you got a few nods, but you know, it, it wasn't rapturous applause. <laughs> for this, uh, uh, actually, actually, Richard, I should share, uh, there was one gentleman in the audience who didn't believe a word I said, went straight to Google because he thought I plagiarized the 10 Wees. I learned that later, uh, later on in my tenure, he was very open about it. He said, man, I just, I thought you recreated this. You stole it from somebody. So no, the reaction was certainly not a round of applause. Right. And how did you handle that? The way I handle every scenario, uh, or at least try to, I'm not perfect, is with an open mind. Why do you feel that way? Why did you think that? I'm actually flattered that you think that. Um, so I was really open about it. Uh, we had a good, as a matter of fact, he actually asked for my PowerPoint presentation because he wanted to check the properties to see if I was the original creator of the document. So he was still not sold. Uh, we're great friends, by the way. And there's a story about Nick in the book that I'm, that I'm really, really proud of. But um, you know, I, I feel whether I'm faced with adversity, whether I'm faced with flaws, uh, regardless, I think just being transparent about my reaction to those things uh, is important because the team senses if the leader is being inauthentic. The team senses they know right away if you're just paying them lip service. So when I was greeted with that reaction, I was kind of surprised at first, proud, obviously, that he felt like it was such a great product that I had to steal it from somewhere else. Um, but open to that, to that feedback as well. Right. And, and how did you then, so you, so you laid these out and well, maybe this is the point to, to, to talk about, you know, maybe not all 10 of them, but some of the most important ones that you started to focus on initially and how sure. you started to get traction in terms of people adopting them. Yeah, sure. Um, so there are 10 principles, as I mentioned, that start with the word we, and I'll, I'll, I'll run through them, but I'll sure. maybe, maybe focus on a couple. Yeah, uh, that uh, that I think are really, really important for bosses uh, who want to become great leaders to consider. So and they're a continuum. They kind of build on one another. So um, and one quick caveat, I must say, none of these principles are groundbreaking in nature. None of them are what we would say rocket science. I mean, I am not naive to that. But the beauty of the 10 we's is when they are combined to be a collective series of beliefs, um, they they, they become kind of our operating system, if you will. Someone coined them a cultural currency. Um, so it's really important. So, so none of these are going to surprise you and say, oh, wow, that's really, none of this is uh, inflammatory or controversial. Uh, but when they're combined and you live them, preach them and exercise them every day, that's where the power in them is found. Um, so the first one is a great example of not groundbreaking, but it's a little bit easier um, uh, if you go a little bit deeper. And the first one is we do the right thing always. Because I felt like no matter what happens, uh, whatever came out of me as I was crafting these or whatever interactions or scenarios we face as a team, we, will, we must be grounded in, we will do the right thing. 
we could argue about what the right thing is. And we should, we should disagree. If you feel one way, Richard, and I feel another way about what the right thing is, we should be very clear. So I, I really encourage, I always encourage the team to focus the, the right thing through three lenses. Is it right for the company? And some might uh, kind of take a step back at that because it feels a little less employee friendly, but this just in, if the company doesn't exist, the team and the employees don't exist. So we've got to make decisions and do the right thing in the mind of, on the eyes of the company. Secondarily, it is for the client. Because again, without the company, the client doesn't exist. Without the client, the team doesn't exist. So we've got to focus on doing the right thing for our client. And lastly is the crew. That's the team. We've got to make sure that all the decisions that we make, we do the right thing through their lens. If you can land on all three in any scenario, that's utopia. Fantastic. If you can get two out of three when you're making decisions or choosing a strategy, you're, you're better off. But you should never move forward with with the right thing, not for any of those three. And certainly the right thing is never about you, the leader. You are mm. never in that equation. It is always about those three cohorts. So if we agree we're going to do the right thing, I think a boss who is aspiring to be a great leader must do what? They must lead by example. And number two is we lead by example. And that is for the entire team is set an example because you're, you're set as a leader or anyone for that matter, you are setting an example. And it's your choice, whether it's a good example, whether you want to have it replicated, whether you want that to be your leadership legacy, whatever the case is. So that's a choice. Um, and if we're going to lead by example, um, uh, where I think a huge opportunity exists uh, in the corporate world is following through. So we say what we're going to do, and then we do it is we number three. Because if you're part of a team, as you know, Richard, someone else is expecting something from you. Could be a peer, could be a you know someone, a colleague, but certainly could be the client as well. So when we make a commitment, we're going to keep it to one another uh, first because that's the priority. How we govern each other for how they govern each other, the we's. Uh, and then if we're going to do what we say we're going to do, that involves taking action. And this really boils down to see something, do something. You know, so many times in the corporate world, we're all aware of an opportunity. And I give the example where. The new hire comes in all optimistic and they put the new hire down with a tenured vet and they sit shoulder to shoulder for the day and they kind of walk through some on the job training and invariably throughout some point of that, that experience, the tenured uh, employee looks over to the new fella and says, listen, they tell us to do it this way, but here's actually how we do it, uh, which is an opportunity for improvement that if had that tenured person raised their hand and felt safe and secure enough to voice that this is an opportunity to do things better or differently. Uh, we may not have to kind of have that, that side conversation with the new, with the new employees. So we got to take action. We see something, do something to take on the opportunity. But if the team is encouraged to take action, we're going to make mistakes. It's we're human. We are absolutely going to make mistakes and the team needs to feel as if they are empowered to take action, but will be picked up when they make mistakes. So we've got to own our mistakes, be very open about them, recognize them as a growth opportunity. Don't judge the person that makes the mistake. Let's judge the mistake itself because I truly believe, and this is a follow-on sentence in the book, is we're not judged by our mistakes. We're judged by how quickly we remedy them and if we repeat them. Making a mistake is totally acceptable in my mind. But the, the team, all great teams have one thing in common. Among other things, this is one thing that they have in common is when the mistake is made, it's we own those mistakes, but most importantly, we pick each other up. And that's we number six. We pick each other up. If someone stumbles, the boss needs to be there with his, his or her hand out. Uh, a teammate, a colleague needs to be saying, Richard, man, I know that presentation didn't go as well as you had hoped it would go, but wow, 
really make great progress versus the last time we talked about this. You'll get it next time, man. It's okay. Everybody makes mistakes. So that environment must exist where we pick each other up. You know, I think there's an area of corporate America in addition and probably around the world as well is uh, a lot of activity is spent not connected to outcomes. So we seven is we judge ourselves by outcomes, not activity. I tell my teams, I don't care if you work from the beach. I don't care as long as the our agreed upon tasks and initiatives are being executed with excellence. It's not for me to prescribe how you get there. You're an adult. You're a professional. I, I value your approach to these things, whatever this scenario might entail. But we're going to focus on the outcomes. Too many times we have this meeting overload in the corporate world where you walk out of that meeting, you ask participants, what did we advance? How are we better off for that meeting? How is our client advanced from that meeting? How is our team? How are we better for that meeting? And if you can't draw a line from that activity, that meeting specifically to an outcome that you're trying to achieve or improve, you should question whether it's valuable enough to actually have taken place. Um, so outcomes versus activity is a huge paradigm shift that I think a lot of us need to focus on. And here's where rolling into we number eight, Richard, I feel uh, I get a little bit of pushback, but once it's finally understood and kind of absorbed, people get a little bit more, a little more comfortable with it. And that's number eight is we challenge each other. So in most environments, the only person allowed to offer challenges is the boss or the leader. Uh, and I don't believe in that. I believe for us to get better collectively as a team, we must be in an environment where peer can challenge peer, member of the team can challenge the leader, that leader can challenge his or her leader. In every direction, challenges only result in progress. Now, that's not a license to come in and just be critical. It's not a license to come in and just be a jerk. A challenge needs to be issued on two grounds and only two grounds based on experience. Hey, hey, we, we attempted a similar launch in my last company and didn't go well for these reasons. We might want to consider that. So that experience should be considered and data. You know, data, if presented appropriately, is irrefutable in many cases. So if we have those two kind of common understandings of what a, a challenge must be grounded in, it makes it easier to receive that challenge. Hmm. But a, a team that is kind of ripe and rich with challenges, but doesn't take on number nine is anarchy. And number nine is we embrace challenge. So whether the challenge comes externally, whether it comes from the leader, whether it comes from a peer, whether it comes from a natural disaster, we must embrace these challenges because we're going to be better off on the other side. Richard, you know it because I've listened to many of your podcasts. The result of progress is almost always because of embracing a challenge, hmm. being better, finding innovative solutions, better solutions, different solutions, improving the employee experience are all the result of recognizing and embracing a challenge, overcoming it and being better off for it. And if we're embracing challenge and we've gone through all of these nine we's and we're living them, it's now time to put the bow or the icing on the cake. And that's we 10, we obsess over details. I think details are really indicative of the care that you put into your brand, but more importantly, obsessing over details sends the message to your customers and your clients and those that you serve that we really care about the product we're giving you. And we're going to obsess over how great that product is on your behalf, because we don't accept anything other than excellence on this team. That's the 10 we's, my man. All right. Great. Thank you. <laughs> and and yeah, so I'm I'm really curious then. So you've laid these out in, in, in the story. You get this this mixed response initially. Yeah. 
you know, where do you go from there? Like, how do you start to implement this? Because there are so many examples in, in corporate world of people creating something like this and they yeah. have a poster on the wall and, and they never Bingo. really have an impact. Well said, well said. And I was adamant the 10 we's were not going to be words on a wall, but I was more focused on not having the 10 we's be a top-down initiative that the new guy says, you must live these or else. So I was really very overt to say, guys, we're not, I'm not, I didn't commission any signage. I didn't commission t-shirts. I didn't commission anything. But what happened was so fascinating as I started to uh, notice the we's were kind of prolifer pro proliferating on their own. I would visit uh, one of our, any one of our locations. And I started to see signage that I never requested. I started to see, uh, I have some, uh, a, an acrylic puzzle where someone made a puzzle piece for each of the 10 we's. Um, we started wearing these bracelets that mm. six years later, I'm still wearing. We do the right <laughs> thing is this one. Um, so I was very purposeful to not push any of these things because again, that would feel top down. I needed, I needed kind of a groundswell. I needed to be organic. Otherwise it was again, as you said, just words on a wall. I refused to have that be, uh, something that I created. Um, and the way that I exhibited, uh, the way I behaved every single day thereafter, I think is probably partially to credit for how they proliferated the way they did. For example, um, there were employees that challenged me uh, daily uh, because they didn't believe in my message. I had one person tell me, yeah, you say a lot of corny things, but we don't, we don't necessarily buy that yet. That came many years later. Someone was open and honest enough to say that. But I had a choice and I had to, that, that moment between stimulus and response became very important to me. So when I was faced with a challenge, had I flown off the handle, banged my fist against the desk, raised my voice and, be and behaved like a classic boss would behave, I'm a hypocrite because I can't get on stage and evangelize how important it is to embrace challenge. But the first time I'm presented a challenge, I go, no, 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 I'm the boss. You must do that. That's, that's inauthentic. And that's, uh, that's hypocritical. So it was important for me to live these principles. And I'll tell you, over time, what came really fascinating to watch and the, the We Challenge uh, number eight is a, is a great example of this is how they became part of our daily vernacular. The we's did. Uh, I wouldn't go a day, literally a day where I wouldn't hear one colleague challenge another colleague, but use the we as the premise to that, to that challenge. So, Hey, Richard, listen, we challenge each other, right? Which immediately puts the person on the other, on the receiving end of the challenge. It, it disarms them. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm about to hear something I may not agree with, but We've all agreed to these beliefs. We all agree that these are our foundation. These are our truths. So I should listen to this um, because they know the challenge that's coming is not personal. Uh, and they know they are obligated to embrace that challenge. So that became part of our daily vernacular. And I, I evangelized it every opportunity I got. And it was important for me to live it. Um, and and it's, uh, it, it worked. It paid off. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, an, uh, that's an extraordinary indicator. If you've got people using it in, in yeah. common, you know, parlance, as you say, a, a currency, a cultural currency where, right where, it, where it's being slipped into all of your, com all of the conversations, you know, that's, that's truly embedded, right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. it's not, well, and that's, that's the, the challenge with the mission statement, right. Uh, or, or a purpose statement for an organization, especially in bigger organizations. Uh, you know, I would challenge anyone to walk through the lobby of any of these big organizations and ask them, Hey, what's your mission statement? Nobody knows. And admittedly, I, my, my teams, if I asked them on the spot, run through all 10 we's, 
They may not be able to do that, but they live them every day and they're familiar with them and they're practical and applicable to their daily lives. Whereas, you know, there's a company in the U.S. that has a has a mission statement that is uh, helping helping people on their path to better health, which is a beautiful goal. I mean, of course, no one would not say that's a, a fantastic goal. But if I'm an entry level employee or even a mid level manager, what does that mean? How do, how am I performing in a way and serving those that our company serves that reminds me or compels me to help people on their path to better health? It's a great goal, but I feel like it's not necessarily actionable and hard to relate to those that are kind of on the front lines through the mid level of the organization. Yeah, that's interesting. And I've, I've definitely been in a lots of organizations where let's say it's purpose or mission that the senior executives are really connected to it, but it, mm-hmm. you get down a few levels and, and it's just never talked about. Right. That's right. Uh, that's, right. And, and that's um, a shame. That's a real shame. I think. And, and you, you were finding that these weeds were percolating down to the, to the most junior levels. The absolute jun- most junior of levels. So this was an organization of about 15,000 people and 13 to 14,000 of them are what we would call entry level. It was a call center environment. Mm. Um, and, and when I would visit the sites, the front, the frontline folks would, I would walk through the halls and we would have focus groups and I would ask the team, how are things going? And, you know, just be there for questions. But as I would walk through, I get stopped and say, Hey, Kyle, Kyle, look at this. And they'd show me their, we award sitting on their desk. So, uh, t-shirts everywhere. So yeah, they resonated with the team, but they also, I think created an environment where even the lowest on the, on the organizational totem pole felt compelled or obligated or at least allowed to have a voice. Mm. Um, and, and big organizations, as you, I'm sure you know, is those that have the best uh, advice or input for innovative ideas or changes or how to wow a customer are not usually the C-suite. It's those that are closest to the work. So in many organizations, those closest to the work aren't afforded the opportunity to talk about it and share what they think to help make us better. Um, so I'm just adamant we've got to allow that communication channel to be wide open and flow freely. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like when you, so, so one of the things in terms of, because this is what's fascinating to me, how did you achieve that, right? What so many companies fail to do is they do this, you know, this honorable work to create values and mission statements or whatever it might be, but, but there's, mm-hmm. there's never a flow through uh, the organization. And, and you started to dropping it. You, well, first of all, you didn't purposely didn't make it top down. So you, right. that was something you didn't do. That's right. But what you did do, you started to reference these yourself every time you spoke to people in meetings. Was that something you took on consciously? Uh, 100% conscious about it. And again, the, the, best, the best way I felt like I could embody the principles and make them, um, you know, our kind of um, manifesto of sorts was to live them. And when I was living them, I wasn't shy about saying it. So okay. if someone would present, me, would present me with a challenge, my reaction would be, hey, wow, we embrace challenge and that's a good one. So, and then I would jump right back into it. And um, what, what really I think becomes uh, a beautiful outcome of this is when, you know, it's easy when, when times are good to say, we subscribe to these principles. It's easy to say, of course we do the right thing. And yeah, I want to lead by example. But what I found was uh, in times of trouble or adversity or challenges, you know, whether external or coming from, from on higher up within the, within the organization, it makes our decision-making and how we react to those opportunities and scenarios much more efficient because we're aligned on, we're doing the right thing. We're going to lead by example. We, we're aligned on these things. Um, so I, and I'm the kind of guy anyway, in general, uh, and sometimes it gets me in trouble. 
I, I'm, I am almost always wide open to share what I'm thinking. And I tell the team, you may not agree with what I'm saying. And that's, that's quite all right. As a matter of fact, if you disagree with me, we should have a conversation about it because I might be missing something and you are a lot closer to a lot of these things than I am. So I like to be very transparent in what I know versus what I don't know. Um, because by the way, this just in your team, they already know what you're not good at. They already know what you don't know because you've shown them time and time again. So anything other than being open and transparent about that, again, is inauthentic. And I think the mm -hmm. team recognizes that and they, they lack trust if you behave that way. Right, right. So, so you're dropping these into your, so first of all, you're living them. You're also demonstrating that you're living, but by, by telling people, okay, this, I'm, I'm using this principle right now as I'm mm -hmm. doing whatever mm -hmm. it is you might be doing. Um, is there anything else that you're doing to encourage this embedding and percolating into the culture? Uh, just supporting it. You know, it was, um, when I realized the groundswell was happening, this momentum was gathering, um, you know, admittedly there was a bit of apprehension on my part, like, wow, you know, is this, is this really kind of expanding and growing the way that it is? Or am I being, uh, there was probably <laughs> admittedly for at least a year, I wasn't convinced that I wasn't being, uh, pandered to as the new guy and the team, my direct reports, they know, and, uh, they would second this and vouch for me that I would ask them directly, like you guys really buying it. The reaction was so strong after several months that I'm like, are you guys really buying into this? Are you just guys just pandering? Uh, and that came full circle. As I started to write the book, I reached out to many of those colleagues from years past to ask them about the impact the we's had on them from their leadership journey all the way to their family lives and how they interact with those that they, that they love friends and family. And, uh, one, one woman, Lori, uh, who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, she was, she, she was very clear to say, I know you thought we were full of shit for years when we, <laughs> that we didn't believe these things, but here I am encouraging you to write this damn book. You've got to get this book out, get this message out. So, you know, that was, that was very humbling and heartwarming. Um, so just being supportive as it grew and as the momentum grew and not taking credit for it. I okay. never said, these are my principles. These were always our principles. And it came to a point in most emails. Um, I shouldn't say most in many emails, people would capitalize both the W and the E and we, because that's how I always, I presented the we's with capital W capital E. The book is capital W capital E. Uh, so I started seeing it in emails as well. So what would I do? I'd reply with capital W capital E as well. And it just became part of our nomenclature. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And of the, of the 10, which initially had got the most traction and which did you find took, took longer to get embedded? Uh, easy answer. The first was, uh, it, it was, uh, embraced the quickest was we do the right thing because no one's going to say, Oh no, we're not going to do the right thing. You know, that was an easy one to sell. What was difficult around, uh, we number one is just landing on what is the right thing. Um, but I remember one scenario very vividly, we had a payroll issue. And when you're talking about a payroll issue with 15,000 employees, and it wasn't that we couldn't make payroll, there was a mistake. So people's checks were wrong. Um, so as a result, some people could pay their bills. Some people accrued late charges on their, on their credit cards. Um, so doing the right thing means you fix the paycheck, but you also try to remedy and go really hard to fix what adverse uh, effects came of uh, as a result of your mistake. Um, so when this scenario presented itself, my team was in a meeting, Hey, we do the right thing, right? We got to fix this. So it became kind of an easy, easy way to, to live. The more difficult was one that I already mentioned. And that's, uh, uh we challenge each other. Um, uh, because again, we're so conditioned to only accept and be aware of challenges 
from higher up. Um, but the beautiful benefit or outcome, once the team finally realized challenging was okay and there's no retribution to voice your opinion, even if I agree, wholeheartedly disagree, we'll, we'll talk through why that disagreement exists. But I would, uh, I would tell you the, the unexpected byproduct of this was growth that I cannot uh, replicate in any other way. And here's a perfect example. My staff meetings, you know, typically, at least in my experience, until the we's were a thing, a staff meeting would involve me sitting at the end of a table, my team individually running through their updates for their functional areas to tell me what's going on. And nine times out of 10, everyone else in the room would be on their phone or they would be checked out because, you know, if Joe is giving his update, Sally doesn't necessarily really care because they don't interact a whole lot, but they're on the same team. So what I was, uh, was really pleased to see this unexpected byproduct was when challenges became more of a thing, uh, one person would give an update and another person on the team who typically would sit quietly on his or her phone, they would challenge that person giving the update. They weren't just letting me give the challenge. It's like they would have a nugget or a piece of information that maybe the person who was going through their update didn't have. And they would issue the challenge with that nugget to say, did you think about this? Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Why is that a problem if X, Y, and Z? And then they would kind of expound on, on their point. So what happens is there almost becomes an accountability agreement between each member of the team, not just the team and the leader. They have to hold each other accountable. If you're giving a, if you're giving a bullshit update, someone else needs to call you out on that, not just the boss. Um, so I think that created uh, an opportunity for information exchange and sharing, which led to a, the beautiful outcome of job uh, interoperability. Uh, one woman on my team, when the, when the Wii's were rolled out, had a team of about, I would say, 200, maybe 250 people. She now has 10,000, just 10,000 employees. And I am convinced, had she not been given, been given the opportunity to challenge and learn and ask you know, what some might say are dumb questions, she never would be in the position to lead an organization of that size. But she was exposed to it and was able to learn kind of on the fly. So when the opportunity presented itself, she was a natural fit. Mm. Yeah, the, the, well, the development, that's, that's how people can grow, isn't it? By, by about, about asking questions and learning from yeah. others around you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you, so you've mentioned that example of, the, of the, not just fixing the payroll issue, but then dealing with the impact mm -hmm. um, for those individuals. And, and what did that mean? That meant like checking in on what? Yeah, tell us about that. Well, specifically, it meant giving them extra money. Uh, right. because they had accrued late charges or, um, well, it was mainly late charges or reconnect fees. In one case, we had an employee whose power was cut off because she couldn't make, she couldn't make the payment because we messed up her check. So going the extra mile, you know, I, really quickly, I, I tell a story in the book where, you know, someone who I think really, really embodies doing the right thing over and over and over again is a fellow by the name of Harry Kramer, who's a former CEO of Baxter International, a multi-billion dollar firm. He's now a, a, a brilliant speaker, a uh, motivational guy. Uh, he's a member of multiple boards. Um, he, when he was at the helm of Baxter, they had a tragedy where 53 consumers of their product died as a result of consuming and using their products. So, you know, I think it's safe to say many organizations would have kind of swept it under the rug, uh, um, deflected the blame. Not Harry. Harry met with the families of the deceased. He, uh, he made the board uh, lower his compensation, his bonus for that year and for his team. 
uh, no one should be awarded if we've got deaths on our watch. I mean, that is obviously not acceptable. But he didn't have to go meet with those families. He didn't have to be public about the mistake. And by the way, they also shut down the manufacturing arm of that division that built the product that ultimately led to the demise of those 53 individuals. So doing the right, I mean, big, very profit, by the way, it cost about $200 million. And this is back in the 90s. Um, so huge move, but obviously the right thing, uh, which Harry will tell you, positioned he and the rest of the team for the next time a major struggle or adversity or scenario presented itself. They knew exactly how they were going to handle it because the example had already been set. Right, right. Yeah, that's a beautiful story. And, uh, and, and it's an example of leadership and courage. It, takes, it, takes, it must have taken courage on your part and, and others who are embracing these to, to hold the line on these, on these principles. Yeah, and it's easy to not. Uh, it's easy to, to, to waver. And, I, um, and I'm just so, maybe it's stubborn. Um, maybe it's pardon the pun. Maybe I'm just so principled, um, that I, I just refused. Now, I'm not perfect. I'm sure there were examples and someone can share with you an example of where I didn't embody the principles, but I, um, it, 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 it was, it was difficult at times, uh, because I'm human. And when I'm faced with a challenge, sometimes my natural reaction is not, uh, what I would be proud of. But again, you know, it, taking a step back and Ray Dalio says this a lot is, you know, putting yourself above the scenario, look down as if you were observing what's happening and, you know, what would be the right reaction to what you're hearing? What would be the right response to move this conversation along and focus on the, the, the topic and not the person? Um, so that was, a, that was a challenge for me uh, from time to time. But again, the last thing I want to be known for, and it's a character uh, attribute that I hold very, very dear, and that's authenticity. So I feel like, and by the way, I think that's a huge trait for any aspiring leader that wants to be great and have a legacy that lasts well beyond their tenure. That is just be authentic, be yourself, admit when you're wrong, admit you don't know the answer to everything and just be open about that. So I felt if I were anything other than authentic after rolling these principles out, um, it's a house of cards. and I can't expect people to behave in a way that I'm not behaving myself. Right. And, and is there an example when you were tested on, on a principle and <laughs> I keep, yeah, this one comes to mind and I've told the story a, a lot and I'm happy to tell it again. Um, so uh, one of the individuals, and I'm going to connect a couple of dots, the story I told a moment ago about the woman who went from 250 employees to 10,000 employees, a uh, woman named Julia. She knows I, I tell this story and she's fine with me using her name. When I first joined the organization, there was a day, I, and I don't recall the exact specifics, but I said, I, I emailed Julia and I said, can you send me that workbook, that Excel workbook? Because I need to look through some data. I wanted to see how the formulas were working. I was just skeptical about something I had seen. So I said, can you send me that information? And Julia, uh, I don't think she would admit this readily, but she challenged me because she sent me a screenshot of an Excel document, which if you've ever worked in Excel, in Excel not very helpful. You're not able to kind of get under the curtains or mm. look behind the curtains on the formulas and the references and all that. So this, uh, this screenshot was not helpful at all. I was hot, man. I was, I was not happy because it was obvious she was just being difficult for difficulty's sake, for whatever the reason was. Um, so I just replied very calmly and said, this is great. Thank you. But I actually, I actually need the workbook. Would you mind sending that along to me? So she sent it to me and I got the answer I ultimately needed. Um, and that was one of many examples that Julia went out of her way to challenge me. Now, full circle moment, uh, and I mentioned this at the top of our conversation. I think I did. 
uh, that organization, Maximus, had me back to deliver a speech uh, just a few months ago. Many, many years later after that, those interactions yeah. with Julia took place. She was the one on stage introducing me. Uh, and she said, you know, a lot of you may not know this, and I'm paraphrasing. She said, a lot of you may not know this, but Kyle and I, we did not get along at all. Uh, and then she goes on to say, I would not be the leader I am today if it weren't for him. The impact he's had on me has been profound. So Richard, I think that's a great story to highlight. She was difficult. And I think she would admit that she was being difficult for whatever the reason is. And it had, had I reacted, the temperature in our relationship would have rised or have risen. And I would have been a hypocrite because I'm evangelizing these principles and not living them. But I stayed steady, man. I was so I would not allow her or anyone for that matter to challenge me in a way that elicited a reaction that I wouldn't be proud of. Um, and that's a filter I often use. Like if this, if my behavior from this scenario were to be put in the press, would I be proud of it? If it were to be exposed to the entire organization, would I be proud of it? If my mother were to see me react this way or behave this way, would she be proud of me? So that I try to keep myself in check with those and with, and with these principles, it, it does make it easier because I've already set the, set the stage and the standard that we're going to challenge each other. We're going to embrace challenge. So when they come my way, I have to be on the same playing field as everybody else and accept those challenges readily. Right, right. And you mentioned about the, the fix the payroll issue and, and how that's a great example of you living the principle. What were some other memorable moments for you of that, that stand out in terms of the organization living the principles? Yeah. Um, so it's a story I tell in the book um, about a fellow named Nick, who, uh, who we've, we've remained great friends after leaving the organization. So Nick was responsible for, so every year, quick context, every single year for this, uh, for our biggest client, we had to do, we, we, went, we, we underwent a repricing exercise. So every year we'd go back and say, okay, client, um, you know, here's what we are projecting your spend for the following year to be. And Nick was responsible for this exercise. And he came to me uh, one afternoon and said, Kyle, I just ran the numbers for next year. And it looks like we're going to be able to save the client $15 million. Huge, right? And, and what, what a great story to, for me to call the client and say, you know, the team has gone through this exercise. We're going we're gonna to be able to reduce your spend next year by $15 million. Um, and I did that. And they were thrilled. The client was absolutely thrilled. Thank you for this. And they asked for a little bit fine tuning of the numbers. So I went back to Nick and Tim and I said, hey, the, the client is thrilled with this, but they want us to kind of tweak some of these numbers to make sure that we're where we need to be and that you know, every, everybody is uh, aligned. Well, the next day I got a phone call from Nick and he said, I blew it. And I said, what do you mean? You blew it. He said, uh, we made a mistake. Uh, the, the savings is not going to be 15 million. There's still significant savings and it was more around four or five million, but it's not 15 you know, very, very big difference. So we're leaving 10, $11 million on the table. And he said, uh, I'm struggling with this. You know, I made a mistake, but I know we own our mistakes and I know we do the right thing. So I'm coming to you because I feel terrible. And I said to him, Nick, we, you're, you're the guy, you are the right guy for this. You made a mistake, but more importantly, you came to me, we're talking through it. And the outcome of this conversation will be twofold. One, I'm going to reaffirm my commitment to you because you're in this role for a reason. Now, if he had been a bad employee with tons of mistakes in the history of this, that's a different conversation. But Nick was the guy who had proven himself and he made a mistake. So that was an opportunity for me to not react in a classic boss form and you know, not fly off the handle. Uh, I reaffirmed my commitment to him. I told him he was the right guy. He went home, internalized it again, 
still felt badly about it. Felt like he wasn't sure if he was the right guy. Uh, the part two of that, as I mentioned, there were two outcomes. They created a, a check and balance and basically a quality system that would not allow that type of mistake, the one that they uncovered, to happen again. Hmm. So he owned the mistake. He did the right thing. I had to go back to the client and share this unfortunate mistake on our part, which I believe, I mean, obviously it wasn't met with, with applause, but I think we earned some credibility in that. We just came straight back with the mistake and shared what it was. I didn't use Nick's name. I said, we, we made a mistake. I owned it ultimately. And we got it corrected. Um, uh, I want to connect two dots though. Nick is the same fella that questioned whether my presentation was plagiarized. (laughs) He's the same guy that asked the document to see if, if uh, I created it or not. And um, uh, several years later, uh, we still have monthly, almost monthly check-ins to talk about our careers, how I might help him on his journey and how he can, uh, I can bounce some things off of him. So, you know, that's a beautiful outcome of all these interactions is that most of that team uh, who was along for the ride uh, and I have stayed in very tight contact uh, and they were some of the strongest voices in me writing the book. Um, so we established really great relationships as well as delivered fantastic results. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's often true in you know, my experience of check, of because what you did is you, you, this was an organizational change or, or initiative or, or transformation. Often it's the skeptics or even the cynics who, if you can win them over, you know, can become your biggest advocates. A hundred percent. And I think that's what happened with Julia. She became such an advocate. She, she says she uses the principles as a moral compass for how she raises her family. Now I can't think of a greater compliment than that, Richard. Uh, I mean, that is like, wow stuff to me. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's extraordinary. Um, so it strikes me that this was an extraordinary, you know, act of leadership on your part to get these principles embedded and, and into the organization. What do you, what are the personal practices that you engage in that allowed you to hold the line on these principles and behave consistently as you did over this period? You know, I, I believe um, where a lot of bosses fall short is they behave a particular way outside the workplace. They subscribe to certain principles. They live, um, you know, they live a certain way, behave a certain way. But when they step into the workplace, they behave a different way. And I think that again reeks of inauthenticity. So for me, it was not only important once these principles became to become, once they became kind of the, the nomenclature or the vernacular, they became a daily thing that we always talked about and rallied around. I, I made it a point to consciously say, I'm going to live these principles externally as well. So, you know, from, from how I uh, interact with my fiance to how I treat my friends to when I make a commitment to do something, I do it. Uh, because I, you know, just like, uh, the we that says, you know, we, we say what we're going to do and then we do it because again, if they see me on your podcast talking about the importance of doing, of living these principles, but then they say, well, hang on a second, Kyle, you, you told me you were going to drop by last Tuesday to help me move a couch or whatever the scenario is, but you didn't do it. You didn't show up. You're a hypocrite. So I just never want to be in that position where I feel like I'm a, I'm a, a, a Jekyll and Hyde, the Kyle at work and the Kyle at home or outside of work. I feel like they need to be the same. Um, and by the way, I think corporate America or corporate Europe, uh, the corporate world in general, um, there is this unwritten rule that you show up as someone slightly different than the person you were outside of work. I mean, Richard, we use different words. When's the last time you went home to your loved one and said, Hey, did you get that deliverable done for me? <laughs> Nobody speaks like that. You know, how are the, how are the, let's talk about the milestones of doing laundry. 
Like nobody speaks that way, but somehow over time, the corporate world has told us we must behave in a way and speak in a way and carry ourselves in a way that is less than authentic. And I think what that does is that creates this behavior where we feel like we need to be something we're not. We need to know it all. We must stand on this perfection pedestal, which I think is just really a recipe for disaster. I want to know if my leader is stressed. I want to know if my leader is fearful of something that's around the corner. I want to know if they're excited. Um, so that starchy kind of robotic uh, corporate persona, I, I, uh, it may work for a time and you may get people to rally around you, but I don't think it's sustainable for very long. Right. And that's something that strikes me about the, the wording in particular of these, of these principles and the book itself. You, you don't use corporate speak. There's, and in this podcast, I don't think we've used, if you tried to do like corporate buzzword bingo on this, on this podcast, you'd come up, you'd come up short, right? I right. mean, pretty much all of the words you've used are in common parlance that, you know, I haven't heard, you know, a, a corporate speak phrase from your, coming from your mouth. And that must be part of it, right? And I think maybe that's also Absolutely. part of why they could percolate so deep into the organization. Absolutely. You touched on two things there that I'd, I'd love to address. And, and um, my, the way I speak and interact with you today is the way I speak and interact with everybody. At least I try to be consistent in that regard. And as a matter of fact, there's a part in the book where I even at the, at the, I believe it's in the introduction of the book, I say, you know, I didn't write this like an MBA textbook. I didn't write this book like some shoe polished start shirt leader that, to whom no one can relate. I didn't write it that way. So I think that's one. But then the other point is, um, and it's kind of what I mentioned earlier, it's the authenticity that comes with being you uh, creates being you, good, bad, or otherwise, warts and all, I like to say. Um, it makes you, it creates this uh, kind of persona that is relatable. And I think the most, uh, you know, I mentioned authenticity being the, the huge, I think is the, the most important character trait of all great leaders is authenticity. I think the second is relatability because I need, you know, as a leader of people, especially an organization in the thousands, multiple thousands, invariably, you're not going to have all uh, Ivy League MBAs on that team. You're going to have entry level folks. You're going to have interns. You're going to have uh, minimum wage folks. And if you want to lead a team authentically and lead them to excellence and inspire and empower their growth, you must be relatable to them. You ca I can't walk into uh, a call center, for example, with uh, a thousand employees in the building, uh, many of them not making a ton over minimum wage in a starched shirt, shiny shoes, you know, gold cufflinks, because that's not relatable. No one in that, no one in that facility is dressed like that. No one is, uh, you know, walking around with, you know, with their, with their hair slicked back and looking like, you know, they just walked off of Wall Street. And if I did that, no one is going to want to interact with me. I'm not relatable. So I think authenticity, leaning into relatability are just a huge, two huge components when combined equal trust. So if I'm authentic and I'm relatable, that sends the message that I'm trustworthy as well. You may not like what I'm saying, but you will trust that what I'm saying is really how I feel and it's authentic. Right. I think that's a really important point. I, the, the second part, especially, I mean, you hear a lot of people talking about authentic authenticity and it's always become, you know, a bit of a, you know, certainly a trend right now in sort of management. Cliche. Circles. Right. Cliche. But the, but the relatability people very, very rarely talk about like the specifics of language, dress, you know, yeah. and relating to people across the organization. I don't hear people talk about that a lot, but that's such an important point, isn't it? Because we do, we yeah. do judge on appearance. 
yeah. we, we, we do you know, seek to put people in the category and that does affect how we're going to express ourselves around people. Absolutely. Now, I'm not, I am not encouraging, if you're, if you're someone who loves to wear gold cufflinks, you love to have your shoes shine, you love that starchy shirt, wear those things. Speak in the way that is authentic to you. Because over time, like, so for me, for example, if I were to show up that way every day, and it's less about physical appearance, but more about behavior, if I were to show up and behave like that persona, um, it's not me naturally, first of all. So invariably over time, I'm going to expose the real me, uh, you know, the little more laid back guy, the guy that speaks kind of plain spoken, uh, love wearing my jeans and t-shirts. Um, I will be exposed for being inauthentic in those previous instances when I showed up starchy. Uh, and the team will say the team, it leaves the team a little confused. Like, wait a second, you know, he was so relatable yesterday, but today he's dressed up in, in, in this garb and he looks, you know, he's speaking differently. I, I think that is a recipe for disaster and leads to a fracture in that trust equation. I mentioned the, the authenticity and relatability equal, equaling trust. Um, so I, I pride myself on uh, being able to interact with the C-suite in the boardroom, as well as the entry-level employee and everywhere in between. Um, it comes naturally for me because I started my career in a cubicle with a headset on. Uh, I was that individual. I was the minimum wage uh, earner for, for a long, long time. Didn't know where my next or how my next bill was going to be paid. So I can relate to those scenarios where someone is not necessarily as, um, as well to do or further along in their career journey or leadership journey. And I think that just inspires authenticity among those around you when they see that. Mm. I hadn't realized that was part of your story. So you, 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 did you leave school and then got, a, got your education later? How did that work? Yeah. So I, a uh, funny story. I, um, uh, I started my career in corporate America at the age of 18. Um, I was two months out of high school, but I interviewed when I was still 17. Uh, I didn't point out my age and, you know, in an application, you don't have to give your age. So I just kind of assumed that they assumed I was of age and I rolled the dice that if I were to get an offer, it would come after my birthday. So I began my career in a call center for a regional bank, um, at the age of 18. Uh, that helped pay my way through my undergrad. And then I just kind of took on successively bigger roles and bigger scale and uh, bigger organizations. And, um, and uh, at, at one point I made the decision to continue to run the run in that rat race, if you will. And I got a, my business degree or an MBA um, uh, that was back in 2012, 2014, again, you know, self-funded. Um, and then ultimately my career in corporate, uh, in the corporate space wrapped up in 2019 after I was the, um, I was an SVP for a, a giant pharmaceutical company where I had a budget of $2 billion. I had 15,000 employees. Um, but I will tell you it's that experience in this kind of a theme that I've seen is the bigger the organization, the more opportunity for cultural toxicity. And that last stop of my career on the corporate side is what, in addition to people kind of propelling me and pushing me to write the book, is what really inspired me to write the book because I came to the conclusion, it doesn't have to be this way. Don't have to live and operate in this environment where you question everything everyone says. What's the motive behind it? You don't have to be in an environment where you question you know, the security of your role because you feel like someone could undercut you or sandbag you or whatever the right term is. Um, because that experience came just after the experience where I rolled out the 10 weeks and I saw how a team can become a real team. And there's a line I use in the book, which I'm proud of. It says, 
colleagues become friends, friends become family. And I truly believe that a lot of those individuals that were along for the ride with me with the 10 Wees when we rolled them out, who are still living them at that organization, I treat them like family now. So that's a long-winded way of say I, you know, I funded my own way through undergrad, through my MBA, took on bigger and bigger roles, and then just found myself kind of at the end of that journey saying, there's got to be more uh, because I've seen it, I've lived it, and I've got a group of people who would run through a wall for me. And I know that because I would run through a wall for them. And if I juxtapose that with my experience at the very last engagement I had with the pharmaceutical firm, um, I, I just knew that I, it's, and it's now become my mission, by the way. It is my purpose on this planet to evangelize these principles because I believe a life spent doing the one thing that we do more than anything else at work, to, to go through that an entire existence, uh, dreading going into that environment, um, having fear for that environment, being apathetic about that environment is a life wasted. Um, and it doesn't have to be that way. I'm not naive. It's called work, it's not called fun. Uh, so we're not going to spring out of bed every morning and, and, and run to work with a smile and, you know, as if it's that, as if it's Disneyland, that's not reality, but it doesn't need to be. And it shouldn't be a place where I dread going. Don't like uh, the interactions that I have with those around me. Don't trust the people around me. Uh, and it doesn't empower me and inspire me to be my best. I don't think it has to be that way. No. And, and that's, that's really coming through your message here. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it, we can have work be, be naturalistic, much more like, like how that. we experience you know, life yeah, with our friends, with our family. Why does it have to become this sort of bullshit environment with right. these crazy facades and the gameplay? Like it, yeah, I think that's what's well coming said. through to me. It, it just doesn't have to be that. Right? It doesn't. It can, it can it doesn't. be something simpler and more naturalistic. Yeah. And, and if, if we're prepared to take those leadership stands, which you took, um, right you know, and, and build that kind of working environment. That's right. But you've got to be overt. You've got to be direct and you got to be transparent. Um, because otherwise, so, so I look at it this way, uh, on my leadership journey, regardless if I was leading a team of five or a team of 5,000 or 15,000, the most important element of my job as a leader is the people. And that's creating an environment that allows them to be their best knocking down roadblocks or hurdles that are, 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 are not allowing them to be their best, empowering and inspiring them, trying to get them in a position where they find fulfillment and passion for their work. And if they don't, it's my obligation to help them find a role that does. Uh, you know, I talk about this a lot where, you know, there's this double-edged sword of being a great performer where oftentimes you are held back from other opportunities because you're so valuable to that team. No good deed goes unpunished, right? So if you're great on the team, Boy, the, the boss typically tries to kind of shelter you from other opportunities. I think that's, I think that's garbage. I think it's my obligation. If, if uh, Julia on my team is really kicking ass, it's my obligation to give her and help her put herself in an opportunity to do more, take on more, earn more, and have a greater impact. Um, so being overt about it, uh, I think, is, is really important. And then emphasizing to the team over and over again, I'm only in this chair to help you. I'm not in this chair to tell you what to do, to catch you doing something wrong. I'm in this chair to help you be your best. Now you own some of that. You have to help me help you. Uh, but I think once that connection is made, boy, the results, they come much more easily and they're usually much better. Yeah. Yeah. That, that being over the signaling of it, because when you're in that position yeah. of authority, 
everybody's looking, you know, scanning for those signals all the time. And if you're right. constantly putting out signals, like this is what I expect, this is what the right yes. thing to do is, this is yes. the principle, well as well said. as demonstrating it, as well as getting on with the work you've got to do, right? Living it. Yeah. 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 Well said. yeah. No, I, that's really coming through. Um, fantastic. Well, we, 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 we've done an hour now. Is there, is there anything that we've, um, you know, missed any you know, story that you'd like to share that, that, that speaks to these principles? Or? Uh, you know, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, you know, I, I would just try to inspire your, your audience uh, in the following way. We can wait for some grand cultural transformation initiative from, from some vague apparition that is usually referred to as management or leadership. You know, I, I heard that a lot. Like, we got to check with management on this front. We've got to engage leadership. Well, those aren't, those aren't real people. We need to engage a person. We need to ask a question of this person. Do not wait for that apparition, whoever they are, whoever management or leadership is, don't wait for them to give you some shiny new cultural transformation initiative. Don't wait for them to set a box on your desk that says, here's our new culture. If you're in a position of leadership, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have a team of direct reports, there are lots of great leaders around the corporate world that have one or even no direct reports. But if you're a leader of, of, of ideas, if you're a leader of people, either way, don't wait. Somebody must make the change. Someone has to step up and say, this is how we're going to operate. This is how I'm going to treat you. This is how you're going to treat me. All this to say, Take initiative. If you see an opportunity, take the action, but live it every single day because consistency is your friend. If you are the one to lead a change, the result is a life, uh, well, certainly a career, but a life um, more, more extreme to say fulfilled. Having passion for what you do because, because I care, by the way, I care a ton about results. I love delivering great results for our company, for our shareholders. But I feel if I focus all of my waking energy on developing team, those results are, are just simply a byproduct of the team and the engagement that we have and the connection that we have. So don't wait, forge that connection with your team. Let them know that you're in it for them, but demonstrate it. You have to, as you said, you have to live it every single day. And when you err, own it. Just say, I made a mistake and that, that's my bad. Let's move on. Uh, and then do the same for them when they stumble as well. So, so take, take the initiative. You have the opportunity to drive the change. And most importantly, you have the opportunity to be the boss that you wish you had. So take that opportunity. Don't wait for it. That, that's, you know, that's, that, I guess I would make that my parting words. Awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, very inspiring, Kyle. Uh, really energized, energized by this conversation. Uh, these are great thank stories. Um, yeah. This, let's build we cultures, right? Let's do it, man. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. That's, Let's spread the word. I, I, I really think, it, like I said, it's my mission and it's my, I believe it's my purpose on the planet because the, the fulfillment and the, and the connections that I have found through these very simple principles is so profound. I can't imagine not living with them now. Mm. Touche. Okay. Well, thanks. Once again, we'll put a link to the book. You have a website as well. I do. Yeah. You can uh, hit the website at kylemcdowellinc.com and likewise, all of my socials at uh at kyle mcdowell inc okay got it fantastic well thanks once again can't can't wait to get this out there and uh in this inspiring message uh reach as many people as we can my thank pleasure you, it's great to meet all you right. great to be with you today thank you
The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.